0: Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. Hello and welcome to Regenerative Farmers America. I am so excited today. Jesse is here with us from White Buffalo Land Trust, personal hero and world regenerator. So I'm so excited to have you today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. and glad to be part of the conversation.
0: Thank you. Just jump right in and tell us, how did you get started on this journey and with White Buffalo and tell us a little bit about this amazing project?
1: uh yeah thanks so i mean i think like many of us our um our paths by which we take are, are sometimes uh non-linear and um the, the story holds true for me you know my background um you know i was born and raised here in central uh, coastal california and uh-huh. grew up with a love of nature and um in the great outdoors but when i went off to school and college really fell into um this love of art and design and um, and so my educational background really comes from one of visual communication design and product design and industrial design and um, I found kind of a, a great overlap with my kind of love of design and the design process and my love of food and nature in agricultural systems and so I'm um, starting to, to, to really kind of lean into ag system design and uh, landscape design and, and designing food systems was um, where I kind of came to this work from um, but once you kind of get your hands in the soil and your feet on the ground then uh, you you definitely want to spend less and less time behind the computer and more and more uh, time out in the field and so um, through a family farm uh, that you know we started in 2012 um, managing kind of tree systems avocados apples persimmons and animal systems of pigs and chickens and turkeys to you know intensive market gardens and mushrooms and microgreens it really was a crash course um, uh, through and through for for um, the better part of a uh, kind of a half decade and and then it you know opportunity really presented itself in our community to um deepen our relationship with uh, uh-huh. the work of regenerating landscapes communities and, and white buffalo land trust was the kind of outgrowth of a relationship between myself and our, our founder uh, Steve, Steve Finkel, and um, yeah, I've been I've been helping grow this organization and our work since day one.
0: I love that. It's kind of always interesting when the artists come to you know the perm- permaculture kind of regenerative background. We think of a lot of just converted farmers. That's such a neat background to bring to it. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about Havala Canyon. Hopefully I said that right. Like, tell me a little bit about that project. It's so unique and you guys have created such an amazing space. Uh, how did that come about and kind of what are your just favorite things or what is the magic to you about that?
1: Yeah, so Havala uh, Canyon Ranch, uh, J-A-L-A-M-A, um, is a thousand acre ranch about uh, eight to ten miles from um the pinnacle of California right at that elbow uh, point conception um, and so we have a really unique uh, opportunity to to be at the kind of um, uh, the turning points of northern California and southern California where um, neighbors on that thousand acres to uh, the Nature Conservancy's uh, Dangermond Preserve and and just north and south we have Vandenberg Air Force Base and uh, Hollister Ranch and and for those who don't know those uh, places you know it's really uh kind of a ranching community a conservation community and kind of a private military community and and on the other side of of us it's you know a multitude of different um kind of cattle ranches and so we find ourselves working on that property at the nexus of many different communities but also in service of the many different uh needs um and questions that those communities bring to uh the story of land stewardship uh so hallmarkian ranches is where our center for regenerative agriculture really resides and grows from uh, where we are able to really put into practice our, our field of focus at White Buffalo Land Trust, um, and we're we're really able to demonstrate where kind of our the principles of regenerative agriculture ground themselves in a unique context of people, place, and time. Um, so the property is um, very diverse uh, topographically. You know, we have um, kind of different ecological sites um, and, and a range of different elevations. Uh, what we really don't have is flat ground, to be honest. Um, but we we have uh, some beautiful kind of uh, annual dominated rangelands that we're seeking to really bring back these native perennial grasses. We have kind of flowing coastal sage scrub, um, you know, amazing habitat for birds and butterflies and animals of all types. Um, kind of dappled oak woodlands and oak savannas, uh, different species, um, including the coast live oak and the tan bark oak and um, some, some new ones we're finding each, each day. Um, and then we also have a great representation of, of, of riparian corridors uh, that flow through the Sandinous, uh watershed and, and really kind of being able to play in this kind of um, moist stream bed, intermittent stream bed um, with different willows and elderberries and sages. Um, and then the managed forestry um, is also alive and, and, and functioning through the lens of um, vineyards and um, a small olive orchard. Uh, so the property itself kind of represents those five, uh, different ecotypes. Um, the, the ecological sites, I should say, um, that have unique vegetation and animal uh, communities, uh, that are represented not only in our property, but around Santa Barbara County and California and Mediterranean regions around the world. Uh, so once again, the, you know, the grasslands, the woodlands, the riparian, the sagebrush, and and the the managed agroforestry and through that lens we're we're really able to ask this question you know what is unique about um, those different ecological sites and how they are represented on the property and um, how can we identify what um, needs to be regenerated regenerated within them you know what different ecological processes um, are functioning and and how can we increase their um, ability to function at a higher level um, and and through that line of questioning comes, um, you know, hypotheses around, you know, okay, well, maybe this intervention, maybe this enterprise, maybe this action or activity is going to be the thing that really helps it improve, um, you know, year after year, decade after decade, however the timeline may may proceed. Um, but that's really that's really what the work is, right? It's it's listening and learning. It's then um you know making hypothesis and taking action and then uh deploying you know monitoring and observation and research and data collection and service of more information uh to to ground yourself in you know more knowledge so that you can go and put it into practice and gain some more understanding and so that reciprocal cycle of learn and share and do is really what um, is happening out there um through our land stewardship through our research and 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 monitoring and then ultimately through our education and training programs. Um, and, and and through that lens, we get to engage with the broader community um, to raise the ecological literacy of, of food service professionals and, and teachers and educators of all sorts, to policy officials and healthcare providers, to you know, students of all ages. Um, and and we want people to reconnect not only to, to the soil and to the water and to the wildlife but also to themselves as part of this living whole system, not as nature as other, but as um, uh, a living whole that we are a key uh, role player in um, and letting people get um, grounded in that, that line of questioning. You know, what, what is my role? How can I contribute? You know, whether it's, you know, the dish I, deserve, I, decide, uh, I decide to serve, um, the way I decide to teach, the policy I decide to write, like all of these things, we all have a responsibility around, and they all have implications on uh, the living ecosystem around us. Um, And then the training part is really around, you know, farmers and ranchers, you know, we want to provide resources, we want to provide a forum for peer-to-peer learning, but also deep discussion around kind of the technical know-how of putting things into practice, whether it be a transition to no-till agriculture, or holistic man and grazing, or you know, managing your own nutrient cycling and composting systems on site, better, um, you know, better farm design and planning. These are all these like really big themes and in these in these big um, shifts sometimes for people. Um, and so we knew we needed a forum with thought leaders and, and practitioners and um, really a framework of approach for how people can make transitions or move the needle forward. So um, that's kind of like a high level um, look at, Hallama Canyon Ranch and kind of what we're doing there um, and then you know that layered on obviously with uh, our organization and, and kind of our, our the structure of our field of focus um, through land stewardship and education training and, um, and, and, and our research and, and monitoring which ultimately kind of rolls up into um, enterprise into products you know we want to create things that people have an opportunity to actually make a choice around to put clothing on their backs or food in their bellies and um, have it make a a difference in the broader community and the landscape. And so we believe that, you know, our our fields of focus all kind of roll up into that into to to products and enterprises and offerings so that um, you know, we can build uh, customers instead of consumers, you know, we can we can build customs around and culture around um, what we kind of uh, put within our our homes and around our family. So um, Yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that for now.
0: I love it. And I, I keep thinking of all the different areas that you've got to have on that farm, right? Like there's got to be so many different, amazing, unique ecosystems. Kind of give us a little more like tangibility about like what animals are rotating through where, what are kind of the projects that you're working on to have that discussion with nature about returning it? What are the boots on the ground projects that you're most excited about?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, I have, uh, I've got two daughters. I've got a eight year old, almost nine year old, and I've got a, a seven month old. And um, I love to look at the property through their eyes and especially my nine year old right now. Um, it seems like every day when we kind of um, are not every day, but every day that we are able to go out together to actually explore the land, she goes, Dad, I haven't been here before. And I'm like, Isn't that amazing? Like, there's so many little nooks and crannies. And, um, and, to that, and I think sometimes we forget whether it's you know the small backyard, or one acre or a one-acre farm, a ranch. Like if you look through a child's eyes, there's always another kind of like smaller nested hole. There's always a little place for a fairy garden or a little kind of like a, a patch of grass to really go and wonder just about wildflowers. And so um, I think that I, I, I love that approach. You know, bring the child's eye, child's my, my mind to um, to the work, and and for us, that really just kind of means that there's an unfolding once again of these different projects um, that have um, kind of a purpose and a set of principles about them that fall into practice the more in relationship um, you, you get with the, with the land base. Um, some of the ones that we're really excited about are uh, kind of in tandem with our livestock. We run, as I said, the finishing operation uh, in partnership with uh, Richard's regenerative Um, It's a a grass-fed beef company based out of Northern California, really focused on bringing uh, land-to-market beef into uh, um, the marketplace. Um, And so we are um, a site for for finishing uh, cattle with them. We also uh, raise um, boar goats. Uh, It's a meat goat, uh, Uh well-adapted to this region um, and and, uh, well-adapted to some of the the, the coastal state scrub and um, and hardier vegetation and, and terrain on the property. Um, But to that end, you know, we do need uh, a greater ability to uh, to manage livestock um, in relation to the diverse topography and vegetative communities on the property. So some of the projects we're working on right now are focused on uh, fencing, uh, fencing design and expansion, um, exclusion zones around sensitive habitat. Um, And that's not to say we will not provide access to that habitat from livestock but right now we don't have the ability to differentiate between say uh, a south facing pasture, uh, a riparian zone and a north facing woodland. And those all have different needs and they all have different uh, recovery periods um, and and they would have different approaches by which you would want to uh, deploy animal impact uh, as a tool. Um, And so we're we're in the process of establishing some, uh, some hard permanent fencing, and some uh, some, some temporary uh, electric fencing around the property just to give ourselves that flexibility um, within the context of holistic managed grazing or multi-paddock rotational grazing to be able to um, kind of differentiate between our management units. Instead of these large pastures, we have a little bit more uh, nuance uh, in our approach. Um, But that also offers us, as we kind of provide these exclusion zones to take other actions such as uh, tree shrub establishments uh, in some of the upper reaches of our riparian uh, zone. So we're we're currently um, deploying um, a I think 154 um, potted plants from uh, funded through the NRCS uh, Environmental Quality Incentives Program uh, in one of the North Creek watersheds uh, to bring some increased biodiversity, um, some taller um, uh, native tree species for bird habitat, some um, more kind of shrub um, uh, and and grasses for uh-huh. for more pollinator and and bird habitat and, and and forage and fodder for for livestock into the future. Um, but this is one of those those things where we want to be um, uh, a, a center for uh-huh. biodiversity to thrive and to spread. And and you know we know that um, part of that is creating um, the niches for native ecosystems that are are great kind of resilience factors. Um, to also have respite, to have these safe havens where people are actively trying to increase their um, their, their function and diversity. So, um, you know, a, a host of different native plant species are all gonna be able to be planted because of the fact we now have um, livestock exclusion fencing. We actually have the ability to provide browse protection, so these can take hold um, where historically there has been kind of unfettered access to these upper reaches of riparian zones and since then have depleted their kind of riparian buffers and tree um, canopy covers and so on and so forth. Um, and in that same program, we're also being able to uh, deploy kind of a similar tactic, but a little bit more of a linear regimented approach in a uh, hedgerow around our vineyard, uh, but similar kind of approach to increase biodiversity, uh, pollen uh, availability um, and habitat um, in in more of a managed agroforestry or, or, or managed, um, uh kind of being your setting
0: i love that you guys kind of just jump into the deep end right managing cattle is one thing managing goats is a whole different ball game near riparian hedges so <laughs> wow <laughs> very true
1: very true very true
0: um tell me a little bit about this integration with richards so it there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen with an organization like yours from top to bottom How do you kind of stay in the mix, make sure that people are getting their needs met as far as the integration of cattle and, you know, from the nonprofit? How do you, because I think we're all better as communities, right? And we keep saying regenerative ag is about community. In actuality, how does that become well managed?
1: Well, I think that um, you're right to kind of bring up the relationship that we have with Richard's um, uh, regenerative because of the fact that that came out of um, a kind of a, a holistic planning process where we do uh, we are able to to, to state a, a context in which we are working, and one of those uh, kind of dynamics was that uh, White Buffalo Land Trust, as an organization, and me as the director of land stewardship, were very new to Halama Canyon Ranch as a land base. Uh, There's a lot for us to learn. You know, no matter how much due diligence, no matter how much how much mapping and planning and site visits, whatever field walks. There's no substitute for being there through the seasons, you know, waking up to the different temperatures, watching grass grow, um, and watching animals interact with it. And so uh, to do that while also um, feeling well equipped to start your own beef company, to start your own pack and wrap operation, you know, to start managing your own, you know, processing relationships and transport, for us just didn't seem like the highest and best use of our energy at these early stages and in early years of our management out at along canyon ranch and also we live in a context in which we're trying to find more traction and more access to uh, regeneratively grown and regeneratively managed landscapes um and and carrie richards and and her family and team have been doing an amazing job of growing that access of great creating products whether they be burger patties or hot dogs or steaks um, or whole animals so that people um, throughout their region, our region, have access to, to these opportunities to, to bring um, uh, really grass-fed, finished, holistically-managed ecological outcome verified meat um, onto the table. So we want to support that. We want to be a part of that. We want to uplift that. You know, um, we don't want to be in competition. They're They're, they're colleagues of ours. Um, and so it made a lot of sense for us to build this relationship where we can help them expand their production base, where we can help them uh, move south into different markets. Uh, we can help them actually fill a niche within their production cycle. The identification that we actually have, we're, yeah, we're both in California, but we all know that Northern California and Southern California are much different kind of ecological context. We, we are in different eco regions. Um, and so because of that, we also took note of the natural patterns uh, that California offers. Uh, during the summer, historically, uh-huh. Southern California has been hot and dry. Uh, uh, during, during the winter, Southern California has had really good green grass. We're cooler and we have some moisture here. Um, but we our grass matures a little bit sooner than they do up at their ranch. So we have the opportunity to finish animals a few weeks. Uh, prior to what their pastures provide. And that's really where they had a deficit of of, of land bases that were able to provide the quality of beef uh, with the story that they their market and their customers really were asking for. Um, so we're able to fill a niche for them, but we're also able to um, meet an ecological need on our property, which means you know there's times in which uh, our, our thousand acres at Halama Canyon Ranch really doesn't want a massive herd of cattle on it. You know, from, from um, you know, June until our first rains in fall or winter, there's not a lot of water and there's not a lot of green grass, you know, and so we want that time to recover. We want that time for especially our perennial grasses that are not those one, those one and done annuals. We want our time for those perennial grasses with what moisture is left. We want it to chase it deeper. We don't want them to have another pass of grazing on them and actually end up being overgrazed. And, and so we're already witnessing such an amazing, amazing resurgence of these perennial grasses that we feel are really the the lifeblood of a healthy pasture. Um, just after you know a year and a half of animal impact, when we have moisture and it's cool, and then the removal of animal impact when it's hot and moisture is is depleting. Um, and so for us, we can bring in a herd that's large enough to really get the impact and the grazing that we're looking for but then um, actually be able to, to remove them and get the, the, the recovery of the um, desired species of perennial grasses um, in, in, the, in the rest of the year. Um, and it also frees up our labor from the livestock management and the cattle to focus on uh, the vineyards, to focus on the olives, to focus on the restoration, the fencing building, the education. So it once again met our holistic context in a lot of different ways to build a relationship in a community with Richards Regenerative and our grass-finished beef operation.
0: I love it. I, I think that point where we all have those farms that have really like suffering points and for some people that's winter, some people it's different seasons, to be able to have somewhere else that they go that just that makes such sense. <laughs> So tell me the journey of food of Figure Eight. How did that relationship come about, and how did you go from all the amazing work you're doing to being able to create a value add product, which is no small undertaking?
1: Yeah, so uh, Figure Eight uh, is our is our food brand. Um, figure Eight Foods is is owned by uh, White Buffalo Land Trust, so it's part of the nonprofit, and um, it's a it's a mission aligned CPG that we started. In order to create a platform to really be um, outward and forward about the purpose of our work is to bring uh, restorative, rejuvenating foods forward from systems of regenerative agriculture. And, and it, we wanted to create a platform that um, lived beyond the, the, the boundaries of even the land bases that we were stewards of. We wanted to create a platform that was able to engage with other producers and producer networks and give them a platform to sell through into uh, a customer base that was really looking for that. And so figure eight um, uh, had a flagship project and, and, and product um, that was, or that is a um, organic persimmon vinegar. And this, this product um, is one of my favorites. It, it will always be like this, you know, your first child, your, you know, the greatest love story You know it's the thing that i've been working on for so long um so i'm really i'm really proud of it but i'm also just really excited to see um people engaging with it people like sharing recipes around it seeing it in people's pantries is just really exciting to me and the kind of the story behind this um christina vinegar was um we used to live on a, a a small um 50 acre uh property that had you know oaks and orchards and animals and one of the orchards was this organic persimmon orchard. And we would harvest, you know, each year. Uh, we would sell through our channels, you know, markets and farmers' markets and restaurants, you know, but there was a lot of grading, you know, A grades only, a lot of polishing, perfect flats, you know, and there was a lot of things that fell on the B, C grade things that there was just no market for, you know, and so we had amazing pork. You know, our pigs ate really well. You know, an artisan creamery avocados apples persimmons acorns like yeah we 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 grew some of the best pigs around but that's not always the highest and best use for you know this nutritious and delicious perennial fruit crop crop, this you know divine fruit of the gods and and so we were able to once again build this relationship with um a company called ventura spirits uh they uh they're just down in ventura near patagonia headquarters and make some amazing artisanal um, spirits. Uh, and one of them was the persimmon brandy. I mean, they would take our uh, end of the year persimmons, our, our BC grays, or whatever was left on the, the, the tree, and made this um, high quality aged uh, brandy spirit uh, that they back blended, I think like three year age, two year age, and one year age. Um, and on like year three, one of their uh, owners called me up and said, you know, we, we left a couple of the persimmons in a bucket and it turned into vinegar um but it's some of the best vinegar i've ever tasted you got to get down here and, and get this and, and sure enough it was some of the best vinegar i had ever had um you know fell into the deep end of research around the the cultural history of, of persimmons uh, throughout throughout asia whether it be china or korea or japan um my close first cousin is is, is half japanese and lives there and he was just shocked that i hadn't even made persimmon vinegar before and, you know, persimmon leaf tea, which was a staple in his house. And so I just, I fell in love with the, the culture around persimmon vinegar and persimmon preservation. And it, it led to um, a grant opportunity. Uh, once again, through the USDA, um, this was an LS, um, uh, a VAPG grant, a value-added producer grant that, that supported us in the planning process, the production process, the financial modeling, the marketing planning, Around creating a value added product from persimmons through a natural fermentation shelf stable product, which was persimmon vinegar. Um, so we did that. Uh, fast forward a few years, that project took to when White Buffalo Land Trust was founded. And I, I had this project kind of ready to go. Um, and we, we, we kickstarted, we started making vinegar, and we found another USDA grant called the LFPP grant, the Local Food Production and Promotion Grant. And that really kind of kick-started us to a new level of being able to invest in branding and invest in packaging uh, distribution production scale up um, and that and through that grant we were able to go through um, the process of branding figure eight foods um, and set ourselves up kind of on this foundation of restorative foods for regenerative agriculture but also finding foods that were shelf-stable, that, went, that had natural preservation processes that didn't require refrigeration. Um, and so that was the foundation for us to kind of launch our second product, which was um, and is uh, the biltong, which is um, you know naturally cured using the pursuant vinegar, as well as salt curing and spices. Um, and this is just an air-dried, non-cooked um, uh, beef snack. and. Has amazing, you know, history as a named product of Biltong in South Africa, um, both with the the Bushmen as well as the Dutch, um, and 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 there's crossover in so many cultures of kind of air dried meat, um, and we found that this was something that could provide a fantastic platform for the work we were doing in uh, kind of regenerative ranching and holistic managed grazing, um, and the, the the on package mark which is uh the land to market uh seal and then, you know the the first uh, regenerative outcome verification um uh standard um that's backed by eob the ecological outcome verification um protocol and, and so we once again we had the opportunity to have this packaged product that could play a role of business card storyteller community builder you know value provider for our organization um, and that's really what we're trying to do with figure foods. We're trying to create a platform that can continue to support our nonprofit work going forward. You know, we can invest more in ecosystem function. We can invest more in education opportunities. Um, you know, we can do more research um, and we can have our cake needed too. We can actually have products out there for people to engage with and people to be able to surround themselves with. So that's kind of the, the origin story of our first two SKUs in the marketplace. Multiple skews, obviously, but we're talking vinegar on one side and biltong the other. Uh, the biltong has two flavors right now. Uh, um, an original spice, uh, uh, or, or I'm sorry, original and a spice. Um, I'm a I'm a spice so the, the spice is 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 absolutely my, my favorite. It's, it's usually what gets me through a lunch period on the field. I
0: love that. And I will, uh, people who have heard me before say, I'm always going to preach it, buy with your dollar, right? Like, so if people want to continue this legacy of like, truly unique food that's built from regenerative systems that are not just, you know, we we can say regenerative and say we're rotationally grazing something, but ecological verification, biodiversity, regenerative is so much more, right? And so we have the ability to directly support that by purchasing things. So I'll, that's my stick. It's always my stick. Vote with your dollar where you want things to continue. <laughs> so I'll throw one more wrench in that I think what you've done uniquely well is you have blended with so many different things, USDA, nonprofit, world, consumers, like you guys are in the middle of so many markets, what would you say to somebody who is maybe a current farmer and they're a little concerned about entering into those arenas? Like the USDA is not necessarily always the leading cutting edge and sometimes regenerative butts head, but you've clearly been able to make it work and had some really amazing successes. What's your words of wisdom to those people to take the next step?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I've got a, call, a lot of local friends and colleagues and peers and, and mentors that, you know, sometimes I think we're crazy for dealing with some of these government grants, you know, because they, sometimes they're a burden, you know, sometimes they're restrictive, um, but they're also an amazing opportunity. You know, these are, these are a lot of these are, these are taxpayer dollars that we need to get back into our community, that we back into our landscape. Um, and so, you know, our organization, um, is doing our best to find avenues in order to demonstrate that it's not, um, it's not impossible to be able to access, um, resources. You know, we live, you know, in a, in a resource abundant, um, you know, time. Um, and it's just about how we manage and, 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 um, those resource flows, uh, to their highest uh, potential. And so I think I would recommend um, not taking what we did and saying, that's how you do it, but instead taking stock of the context in which you're working and identify the priorities of your own entity, whether it be you as an individual, you know, your family, your farm business, um, and then find where your priorities and your values align with different resource bases and communities. So I'll say this, you know, we are a nonprofit organization. So we do have opportunities for fundraising that for-profit entities do not. Um, That's mostly found on kind of the the foundation side of things. You know, there's there's private foundations, there's family foundations, there's donor advised funds. There's, you know, the whole tax world where people need to get tax write-offs for donating. And our nonprofit has an ability to be able to bring those um, into the public benefit through our work but so many of the grant opportunities that are focused on agriculture are not designated for nonprofits, they're just designated for farmer and rancher communities. And, and so the USDA is a, obviously a big kind of overarching kind of bubble. Um, and so underneath that are different kind of departments and the NRCS is obviously one of one that we've found ourselves working quite a bit with um, through the equip program, then once again, the environmental quality incentives program, and they were, they were incredibly helpful. I was just explaining this to a, a farmer yesterday, where he was asking which grant writer we used, or how much time, and I was like, you know, the, our NRCS um, director has been so valuable. She walks the land, she asks questions, she wrote the grant, you know, she we have the supply information, but she submits you know, and so there's a lot of support out there. Um, from not every not every region is the same. <laughs> not not every agent is as helpful. Um, but I'll give a shout out to, to to Emma Chow and and what she's been able to to do in our region, um, in our community. Um, and then I'll also say that you know there's a lot of other uh, programs out there that are being more privately led, like the, the Kiss the Ground Farmland program that's providing resources to farmers and ranchers around education and resourcing and um, and and research, data collection on their land, um, the work that Fibershed is doing in their community. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's just it is really about understanding the communities in which you're working to help you identify um, where support might be found. Um, and we're just doing it in our context um, to, to be able to demonstrate one way.
0: I love it. And I'll throw you one more twist. For somebody who is not a farmer and somebody who just loves this movement, what would you say is their best way to get involved and be a part of this if they didn't want to farm?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of back um, to something I said earlier, which is, you know, one of our kind of directives is to um, help people find the opportunity to connect themselves because they are, but like overtly understand what that connection means. Um, and so really look at what your passion is. You know, sometimes your passion is not what you do every day, you know, and that's okay. Um, but if, if you are doing something that you truly enjoy doing, you know, or you have um, a job or you have work, that you see is 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 impactful is, is meaningful, um. Then find what those threads of meaning and impact are, um. And try to understand um the, the the different nodes are for you to you know different acupuncture pressure acupuncture points are for you to really kind of um send positive um positive work into our ecosystem. You know if you think about it, you know if we're if you're in a classroom with a bunch of kids, you have a bunch of young minds. You know, how many of them know how to grow their own food? How many of them know the importance of healthy soil? Um, we can teach math through that lens. We can teach science through that lens. We can teach literature through that lens. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what we're teaching, but teaching it in a context that helps people understand their connection to the natural systems. And I could go on and on around, you know, family health care, around policy, around, you know, food service, you know construction, you know, architecture, you know, all these things, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, our Caltrans, our, you know, roadside, like, government work crews could have a huge impact on our ecosystem through water management and, like, like roadside tree buffers and median, you know, planting, like, just that alone. If we just dealt with the buffers and the medians of our roadways, As a way of supporting biodiversity corridors like that could be one of the greatest missions of our time, but not many people would put caltrans as the stakeholder group that you would be most excited about in regenerating ecosystems, but. They are and that's that's a priority to be able to find someone there that can like understand that they have that potential contributive role. Um, So I think that that would be my advice is to recognize the threads of connection and, and act upon them in a positive manner.
0: I love that. So everybody, I highly recommend go check out all the amazing work he is doing from the product to the farm, get out there, come visit him. And you will also find them on Instagram, putting out tons of beautiful pictures of all the work Jesse is doing. So go check them out. Jesse, I appreciate your words of wisdom so much. It's been fantastic.
1: Thank you so much, Lauren. I really appreciate the work you're doing and I'm very grateful for the invitation.